Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. How does one preach through two verses of an introduction to a letter? I know some are asking that. Before we do that, we're going to pray. God, I'm thankful for this church family. We have endured much together because you have great plans in store for us. You've caused much suffering among us. In individually and corporately, but it's all to prepare us to be on mission, to make us more like Christ. God, I pray that you would use this word today to encourage every single one of us in this room to look to him to prepare us for the coming trials that Jesus promised. Show us how to suffer well for him, that we would represent his name well. In his name we pray these things. Amen. The easier life is for you, the more control you think you have over the world. You decide you want to go somewhere on this planet and you plan the trip and when you arrive at your destination, it affirms how much power you have in your life to go wherever you want. You choose a career path to have some influence over this world. You apply for the job, and when you get the job, it affirms how smart you are. You set your sights on one in eight billion people on this planet that you want to pursue as your spouse. And when they finally say, I do, it affirms how attractive you are. You look around at everyone else and you wonder why they're struggling so much in their lives. It must be because they're not as smart as self-controlled, as attractive as you are. Subconsciously, you're singing that song with a little twist. I've got the whole world in my hands. I've got the whole world in my hands. The world looks pretty small when life comes easy to you. And then God brings some really difficult challenge into your life and knocks that illusion of control right out of your hands. Suddenly you realize the world's much bigger than you thought. You're not as smart, attractive, self-controlled as you think you are. You feel scared, desperate, hopeless because you can't figure out how you're going to find some little bit of joy in this big, uncontrollable world. And then you finally turn to God. You're on the right path. You think that if you just do what God says, then things will turn around for you. Then, certainly, God will help your life go better. But we're going to see as we go on a journey over the next few months through the book of 1 Peter, that he writes to explain that when God pours out His grace upon you, He brings difficulty into your life to remind you who really has the world in His hands. This is God's world. He is in absolute control over every detail. And you're right to long for peace and joy, but you'll never accomplish it 
by striving for greater control over your life. Our call to Christ is a call to surrender everything and trust that He is at work to bring you His peace. As we go on this journey through the next few months in the letter from first, from Peter, we're going to see that it's a letter written to encourage struggling saints with hope to endure. Peter wrote to churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. They've been experiencing many hardships, even persecution for their faith, and they can't figure out if they should continue. They just wanted some peace in their life when they received Jesus. And they've gotten nothing but trouble. Why should they continue? So Peter's whole message is to stand firm in your holy identity in Christ. That's the main idea from these first two verses, but also the main idea of the whole book of 1 Peter that we want to keep in mind. Peter writes, to give hope that God is at work to bring eternal peace even when you can't see it in your difficult times. Stand firm in your holy identity in Christ. I'm going to summarize the whole book of 1 Peter just by looking at these two verses. These, these two verses give us a little bit of an outline for three motivations for us to stay faithful. To Jesus. The first one comes from the Apostle Peter himself as the example of perseverance. Peter's experienced all kinds of troubles in his life, and he's endured in faith. He's a great example for us to follow. Second, we'll see how Peter uses the Bible then in the story of Israel to motivate us by the pattern of perseverance. The story of Israel that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ becomes our story, which inspires faithfulness. Finally, the character of God Himself provides the guarantee of perseverance. God is sovereignly at work in every single detail of your life in order to multiply to you grace and peace. So let's start right at the beginning. In the first few words of this letter, with the example of Peter as the, ex- uh, the example of perseverance in Peter. The whole letter starts out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a typical way that a first century letter would start. When we write a letter, we would normally write to the person that we're addressing it to, Dear John. But in the first century, you would write the author's name first. And you would probably include a title, something that would tell by what authority you're writing or what the purpose of your letter is. So Peter identifies himself as an apostle, meaning... I'm writing this under the authority of King Jesus. But this is more than just some kind of quick thing we can overlook and throw away as us typical introduction. The fact that Peter's writing this letter at all is quite astounding. Last summer we finished almost two years of preaching through the book of Matthew, which highlighted also Peter's faith story. And if you remember much of Peter in the book of Matthew, it wasn't really a good look for him. He was portrayed as rather ignorant, brash, faithless at times. Peter's introduction begins in Matthew 4 where Jesus calls him. He's casting nets, fishing, and Jesus calls him to follow him. And in very Peter-like style, he drops everything and immediately goes, showing us he's kind of a first among the disciples. He's the first to speak. 
the first to jump into trouble, the first to experience great blessings, the first to fall in failure. In Matthew 14, he walks on water with Jesus. But then he also sinks as he takes his eyes off of Christ. In the next chapter, chapter 15, he's super confused about Jesus' interpretation of these ritual purity laws. And then, in Matthew 16, he's praised for his understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus praises him so much that he gives him the keys to the kingdom. Peter says in John chapter 6, incredible things like, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And yet, the guy who declared that is the same guy who rebukes Jesus when Jesus predicts his death. He slices off the ear of a guard to start a revolution. And when Jesus is facing his own trial, Peter denies he ever knew him. Throughout the Gospels, we see Peter as a guy who, though he's physically following after Jesus, he really misses everything Jesus came to do. Let that be a lesson to us. You may say you're following Jesus, but are you missing what He's all about? Peter got excited about all the miracles that Jesus did. He saw these incredible healings and, and the power Jesus had over creation, calming the sea, rising, raising people from the dead, feeding thousands of people from nothing. He couldn't wait until Jesus was on the throne so He could be right there with Him sharing some of that awesome power. And Peter misunderstood what his identity was in Christ. He missed what was written by the Law and the Prophets. He missed it when Jesus explicitly explained it to him. And then once his leader was dead, all of Peter's dreams died with him. That wasn't the end of Peter's story, obviously. We have a letter from him. Peter's dreams died with Jesus on the cross, but three days later, Christ rose from the dead, giving Peter an entirely new vision for what his life was to be for. At the end of Matthew, Jesus recommissions Peter and all the disciples, making them his authorized representatives here on earth. At the end of John's Gospel, Jesus personally restores Peter, puts his arm around him, says, care for my sheep. Feed them. Love them. Don't rule over them, but suffer with them. And so, when we turn the page to the book of Acts and Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter's story continues down this redemptive road. The Spirit comes down on Peter at Pentecost and he's a completely different man. He stands before that same mob that crucified Jesus and calls them to repent. He refuses to stay silent about Christ, and so he goes to jail, joyfully singing praises to God for this opportunity to suffer. He loses beloved friends over his zeal to take the gospel to the nations. Tradition tells us that Peter followed so closely in the footsteps of Jesus that he too was crucified on a Roman cross. If God can transform an ignorant, hot-headed Nobody like Peter. What does he want to do for you? What is he going to do through you? 
God saved foolish Peter, gave him a new heart, gave him his spirit and sent him on this mission facing incredible hardships. And he endured. The very first words of this letter ought to encourage us that no matter what you are called to endure, the same God that rescued, saved, and sent Peter is the God that lives in you. And He equips us through great suffering. Peter was Jesus' closest disciple, we see. John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And those whom Jesus loves, He sanctifies through great trials. I once once had a friend counsel me in a moment of intense suffering of my own. I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but it was so full of wisdom. He said, God must really love you, Adam. Because He seems to give the hardest trials to those He loves most. Peter was certain of his love in Christ precisely because of the trials he experienced. Because through them, he got to experience Jesus more intimately. And you too can be certain of God's love for you when you suffer in faith. Because this is the way He promised He would make us holy. The way He promised He would shape you for His purposes. It isn't an accident. It is the plan that God has designed from the beginning. Look at the next phrase in verse 1. How Peter describes his audience reveals the pattern of perseverance that inspires us. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, on the surface, rather boring information for us, right? But the words are chosen very carefully to introduce for us the theme of Peter's message. The key phrase is the elect exiles and the dispersion. This has both a a physical and spiritual dimension to it that's meant to encourage faithfulness. Many people in these regions were present in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. There's some of the same regions where Jews were dispersed all over the world and they would make this yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festival. And there they heard Peter preach for the first time and they became Christians themselves returning back to these regions with this hopeful news, and now they get to hear encouragement from this same Peter that brought them the news of salvation. Others also were likely from Rome originally. Christian People who became Christians in Rome, maybe through Paul's ministry or Peter, Ananias and Sapphira. Not them. What are their names? Thanks, guys. Priscilla and Aquila. Not the two that died. That was bad. Priscilla and Aquila. So these Christians in Rome, become Christians in Rome, but then the emperor Claudius, he desired to make his power more fully experienced in Asia Minor. He forced people out of Rome, thousands to go start new cities. Just up out of nowhere, making them go live in a strange land around strange people. These people find themselves as exiles. Trying to figure out, how do I live? How do I remain faithful in this suddenly new, unfamiliar, hostile place? Peter is writing to remind them, 
that this is actually a benefit to them because now they can see more clearly and embrace more fully their identity as a people of God. The words elect exiles of the dispersion are words that were regularly used of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Elect means chosen. We see that pattern in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, chosen, specially created to represent God. Abraham, called out of Ur, come out of that land. You are going to be the head of my new chosen nation. And then you see Israel reminded repeatedly, there's nothing special about you that makes you better than the nations other than I chose you. But, even though they were chosen, the imagery of an exile also became part of their identity. Adam and Eve kicked outside of the garden, exiled out of the garden. Abraham's family never really got to settle into the promised land. They were exiled to Egypt. And then when they finally did come back, because of their unfaithfulness, they were exiled to Babylon, scattered all over the world. Though they were God's chosen people, this identity of exiles stuck with them for generation after generation. And so as we saw last fall in our series through the Minor Prophets, all of this this pattern was leading us, pointing us to Jesus. Jesus was the chosen one sent by God. His own Son to redeem the world. Exiled. Sent away from His home in heaven. Crucified outside of the city. But He stood firm in the Father's plan who exalted Him in due time, returned Him back to the right hand of God to show us sufferers who are in exile that one day our exile too will end and we are guaranteed a place home with God. So by faith in Christ, even the identity of elect exiles becomes our own identity. So in the first half of the letter, to introduce the whole story, the whole letter, Peter uses imagery from the Old Testament to describe the church and now her identity, our identity in the world. We're portrayed as a people starting a new exodus, called from exile, called to be holy, sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb, born into an incorruptible family that one day will arrive in the promised land. He summarizes it in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. These are all things that were spoken of Israel in the Old Testament that are applied to the church today, consisting of both Jew and Gentile. Peter's establishing this identity in God's people to encourage them that just as Israel returned to the land, just as Jesus returned home to the Father, so too, if you are in Him, you will return. No matter where you are exiled, you will make your way home to the Father. It's the pattern of perseverance throughout the Bible. This is why Jesus says, if you follow Him, you will suffer. Not you might suffer, possibly, there's a good chance, No, you will suffer if you follow Christ because you have the identity of elect Israel. You have the identity of Christ exiled from His heavenly home. This is how God's people are made holy. So when you suffer, as you pursue Jesus, it's only an indication that you 
are loved by God who is making you like His Son. That ought to be the greatest encouragement we could have. This is why, friends, that our sermons week after week emphasize more the entire story of the Bible and and that culminates in Christ than simply giving you principles on how to apply some biblical living in your life. Your faithfulness depends more upon your embrace of this identity in Christ than knowing specific instruction on how to live a certain way. This was the reason why we went through the minor prophets over the last few months, in order to more clearly portray this identity that Peter is about to give us. Any application simply flows out of this call to embrace a new purpose in your life. So, when Peter addresses your relationships in chapters 2 and 3, your relationship to government, employers, in your home, and with one another, it all comes out of this identity as an elect exile displaying the work of Christ in you. Peter tells us that we must suffer. It's the pattern of biblical faithfulness. And he gives you leaders in chapter 5, elders, to model this faithfulness through our own suffering, as you have seen in us even over the last three years. And we are called to walk with you through your trials. This is where the application happens. We consistently point you to Christ and your identity in Him, and then we walk with you as you suffer. We come into your home. We eat with you. We pray with you. We weep with you and encourage you to endure because Christ is at work in you. Maybe you think that I'm exaggerating a little bit about this promise to suffer in your life. Life's not that hard. We live in America after all, right? All this talk about suffering is a little extreme. Perhaps it's because you still hold some of that illusion of control over your own life and you need to surrender more of it to King Jesus. Or maybe this is just a message that's to prepare you. As Peter says, so you are not surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you because they will come in one form or another. I know many of you are suffering even right now. Broken relationships, losing children, struggling health. But be encouraged because you are right in the will of God. This God who since the beginning has been working all things together for the joy and peace of His people to lead us through many dangers, toils, and snares. You are right where God wants you. It was His plan from eternity past. It's what He's doing now in your life. It's what Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago. We see that in verse 2. The guarantee of perseverance. He says, your calling as an elect exile is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ in the sprinkling of His blood so that grace and peace may be multiplied to you. Your trials are sovereignly designed and executed by God to accomplish His purposes in your life. The entire triune Godhead 
orchestrating all His work through history and weaving it into your life to shape you to be like His Son. The Father ordained it. He foreknew it because He planned it. Before the foundations of the world, He designed exactly what every single one of your lives would look like. Every moment of suffering you would have to endure in order to make you holy, to get you home to your promised rest, to make you like His Son. He's the Father who knows better than any earthly father, better than His little children, what is best for them. In Christ, you're adopted into His family and He will care for you better than any earthly father. But just like a good father, He takes away good things. He teaches you difficult things. He pushes you to try hard things in order to prepare you for better things. And He promises to be with you every step of the way. His primary means of care for you is His own Spirit. This next phrase says that your difficult experiences are for your sanctification by the Spirit. The Spirit is in you working these things and around you working the circumstances to file away the rough edges, to take away the impure thoughts and refine your deepest desires. The Old Covenant couldn't provide this. The law couldn't transform you into a new creation. But now in the New Covenant, the Spirit enters in you, lives in you to make you something more beautiful than you would ever have designed for yourself. He makes you able to walk in a manner pleasing to God. So Peter writes, obedience to Jesus is the goal. And it's accomplished by sprinkling of His blood. The only way that we know the Father is by looking at the Son. The only way that we get to have the Spirit in us is by the obedience of the Son. Peter takes this imagery of obedience and sprinkling from Exodus 24 when Moses comes down from the mountain. He received the law from God. And he comes and stands before the people and says, this is what God called you to be. Obey it. And then he sprinkles them with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. Sealing them into that covenant. Binding them to God and all of the blessings and curses that come along. But that blood wasn't enough to guarantee a relationship with God by His Spirit. Ignorantly, foolishly, when they receive these commands, they stand before God and say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We got this. But they couldn't because they weren't righteous. They weren't holy. They didn't have the Spirit. And so when difficulty came, when temptation arose, they fled. They quit. They walked away from God. And Peter recalls this in his introduction to say, we have a greater covenant now. We don't look to the law to become obedient. We look to Christ. We look to His obedience. We look to His blood shed on the cross. And when we look to Him, we're transformed into His likeness, into His image, filled by His Spirit, cared for by His Father, and we stand firm in our new identity in Christ. When you find yourself in difficult trials, you can be encouraged to endure knowing that God the Father planned it. God the Spirit is working in it. And God the Son died and rose from the dead to guarantee 
that you will endure in his image for his purposes. We don't come to the Bible. We don't preach to you just to make your lives better. Peter shows us that we come to the Word to let all of our dreams die and find a much better, more glorious calling. You can't learn how to relate to one another until you learn how you relate to this holy, sovereign, beautiful God. And then, every day of your life, you surrender more and more and more to Him as He transforms you into His Son's likeness. Standing firm through suffering in this life isn't a witness of your own wisdom and your own conservative values, your own self-control. It's a testimony of God's work in you. So Peter's book, Peter's letter, is written to give us direction how to endure in this new identity. And his instruction isn't so much specific details to follow, but a person that we are to become. If you misread the instruction, though you think you're aiming the right direction at the right goal, you'll miss it completely. It's like my coffee-making abilities. I stink at making coffee. And recently, I asked Jake, I had some people coming into the office to meet, and I asked Jake, will you show me how to use the coffee machine to make coffee? And he, step by step, do this, and then do this, and I'm just watching. Okay, yep, that step, and then that step. Okay, I got it. I paid real close attention to those instructions so I could make good coffee for my friends. And when the time came, I followed Jake's directions to the T, or so I thought, until immediately this a very light brown liquid just came pouring out, and I could tell, even as a non-coffee drinker, that this stuff would be terrible. And what did I do wrong? I stepped back, I looked at how the machine works, and I said, what's my goal? What am I aiming for? And how do all these parts fit together? One working with the next, working with the next, to get us to what some call good coffee. And then, when I understood the whole purpose, I realized what I did wrong. I put the water in the wrong spot and it just poured right through the ground. I was so focused on the individual instructions that I didn't pay attention to how they all work together. And when we focus too much on what's my calling and how do I do this and what does the Bible say I should do in this part of my life, we miss the big picture of what God is doing to shape us into the likeness of His Son. And how He does that through difficulty, conflict, and suffering. We don't mature and overcome difficulty by following a list of instructions that we would so easily get wrong anyway. We, we come to the Bible and we say, give me the instructions, because if I do them, then God will bless me. But that's again assuming that we have control. We need to let go of this idea that the world is in our hands. Even that God is in our hands. Peter tells us, he writes to us that, that we become mature believers by looking to Christ who fulfilled the pattern of perseverance by the sovereign plan of God. This is our constant weekly daily message to you. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and become like Him. Look to Christ to refocus your purpose in this world. 
Look to Christ to endure the trials He sends your way. Look to Christ. Stand firm in the holy identity He gives you. And then you will find grace and peace multiplied to you. Let's pray. God, in my weakness, I want to say, please don't bring any suffering my way. I've had enough. I'm tired. But at the same time, I say, give me more of Jesus. Knowing that to have more means more testing, more trial, more difficulty. Help us face it in faith that You will exalt us with Christ in due time. And until then, I pray, God, that our suffering may cause us to cling to You more tightly, long for You more fully, be satisfied in You more deeply, trust in You more joyfully, proclaim Your Word more boldly. Help us, Father, to endure faithfully in Christ. Amen.